Second John, the second epistle of John, and I'd ask you to stand with us as we read the text, if you're able to stand, reading beginning in verse 9. John the Beloved, writing, verse 9, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. So we're going to speak tonight on the doctrine of Christ. Uh, Christology would be the technical name for it, but there is no more important doctrine in the Bible than the doctrine that we'll talk about tonight. So let's give it our undivided attention. All right, let's pray. Father, we know that your word is true, and we're grateful to have your word. We know that as much as we love the word, and as much as you emphasize the word, the devil hates your word. And so help us tonight to resist any temptations to be distracted from the truth that's before us. I pray you'd use it. I pray for those in this room who know about you but don't know you personally, that the word of God would especially work in hearts. And I pray for those of us who are somewhat familiar with Bible truth, that our faith will be encouraged and strengthened tonight by the Word of God. And most of all, we pray that you would be glorified and honored and praised tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. You know, any doctrine is important. If it's in the Bible, it's important. There, you know, we tend to, people tend to categorize what they would call essential or non-essential doctrine, people, things that are more important than, and all, there are some that are more important than others, but all truth matters. If it's in the Bible, it matters. But this doctrine, we, ha we must have right. We have to have this right. A, can, a person cannot be saved and be wrong about what we're going to talk about tonight. Look what it says in verse 9. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. Very simple put, isn't it? If you don't have this right, you don't have God. You, you can be right on Christ and wrong on some other things, and you may get by. You can go to heaven being right on Christ and not being right on other things. But if you're wrong on Christ, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. John the human instrument that God used <coughs> to give us these epistles uh, emphasized this doctrine and defended this doctrine even as early as we know of as, as the first century. Now we're going to come back to this passage, but I'm going to, I'm going to leave this passage and go to several other passages, so you might want to put something here to mark this, but go to the Gospel of John. We're just going to look at some of the writings of John uh, for a few moments. Look at the Gospel of John chapter 1. Uh, 
John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 14, John writes, And the Word was made flesh. The Word that was in the beginning with God. The Word that was God. That Word was made flesh. That word means it was incarnate. It, became, it was embodied in flesh. The Word was made flesh. That's the incarnation. Talking about Jesus. And dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So He was the same Word that was before there was anything. The same Word that were made, that made everything that was, in verses 1, 2, and 3, was made flesh. This is, this is John's emphasis in his first writing about the importance of the person of Christ. Go a little further in the Gospel of John to John chapter 20. As John is nearing the end of his Gospel, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, he gives a brief explanation of the purpose of recording these many miracles that he witnessed as a disciple. John chapter 20 and verse 30, it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. This is not all that Jesus did. There are many other things that he did. As a matter of fact, he wrote that you would, all the books of the world wouldn't contain all of them. But look in verse 31. But these are written. And here's the essence. Here's the reason that these things are written. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. And that believing you might have life through his name. This is the reason he says we wrote these things. That you would be right about who Jesus is. That you would believe that Jesus is that Christ. Now go back to 1 John, if you would. Not the second John where we were, but the first epistle of John. And here again, John's writing about this important doctrine. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. Turn the page or so to the right to 1 John chapter 4, a passage that we read uh, in recent service about judging doctrine and judging teachers. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they have God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. 
And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Now you think about all these verses, these different references, all written by this one person. John was not the only one that emphasized this doctrine, but can you see the thread of significance as John in the Gospel of John more than once, in 1 John and 2 John, he's emphasizing and defending this important doctrine. It's critical that we have this right. By the way, it was this doctrine, and we can look at this in the Gospels, it was this doctrine, the doctrine of who Christ is, that from a human standpoint resulted in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I say from a human standpoint because it was God the Father's will, it's his plan that Jesus would be the sacrifice for sinners. But from a human standpoint, what was it that caused them, what was the reason these enemies of Christ caused him to be nailed to the cross? It was because of who he claimed to be. He was not just a great teacher, he was not just a man. He was God in the flesh. He was the Messiah. Let's look at this real quickly. We'll come back here to our passage. But go back to the Gospels and let's look at a couple of places. One is uh, John's Gospel, chapter 10. John chapter 10. Jesus said, give you a moment, I see the page is turning, hear them turning. John chapter 10 and verse 30. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Verse 31 says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Why? Because of who he claimed to be. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. It was that... It was that claim that Jesus made of his own deity that caused such hatred toward him. Um, John, from John, go to the left just a little bit to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22. And uh, this is, a, this is um, part of the record of when Jesus was being falsely accused and eventually taken uh, to his death. But in Luke chapter 22 and verse 66, it says, And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, This is the religious crowd, the chief priests, the scribes. This is not the Roman soldiers. They brought him into the council, verse 67, asked this question, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter, Jesus says, Shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God? Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, what need we of further witness? Any further witness? 
for we ourselves have heard it of his own mouth. This was the doctrine that led to his crucifixion. And so I say it's a vital doctrine. It's not just an incidental thing. It's a vital doctrine. And we want to be right on this. Back to 1 John, or excuse me, 2 John, where we began. 2 John, one last thing about the importance of this doctrine before we actually get into some of the uh, elements of it. But in 2 John, verse 10, it says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. You know, this, as much as any other doctrine, is like the litmus test for fellowship. And a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of different religious groups can be wrong about certain things in the Bible. They can be wrong about the church. They might even be wrong about the Bible itself. But if they're wrong about Christ, we can have no fellowship with them at all. And that's one of the reasons why, and this is not new to most of you, but it's worth saying, if a cult comes to your door and wants to dialogue with you about their belief, and you recognize that it's a cult, you know, there's only one thing that I would recommend you discussing with them, and that is this doctrine. Because that's the one thing that they're wrong about more than it. They're wrong about a lot of things, but this, this again, is the litmus test. Who do you believe that Jesus is? And they may say he's the son of God, but they don't believe that he is God, incarnate, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. They treat, the Mormons treat Jesus like he is an angel. They, they believe that he was an angel, created being, and as Lucifer was an angel, and Lucifer and Jesus were brothers. But, but you don't need to know all that, just know this. Ask them, what say ye of Christ? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? And they're not right about that. And, and that, to me, as far as I'm concerned, that's the end of discussion. That's why the Bible says, don't even have them in your house because they, because they believe, believe such false beliefs about Jesus. So what does it mean, this doctrine of Christ? And I want to I take a few moments tonight, really the biggest part of the message, and just give us just some elements of this important doctrine of who Christ is. And I'll just kind of break it down into pieces. But first of all, we want to think about his pre-incarnate existence. Pre-incarnate means before he was incarnated, before he was embodied in the flesh. It's good for our children to know who Jesus is. It's good for them to be familiar with the Christmas story. It's good for them uh, to be familiar with the miracles of the Bible but they need to know that Jesus didn't begin when he was born in a manger. His pre-incarnate existence. Before he was born of Mary, he was eternally, eternally means forever, eternally coexistent and eternally co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. He had no beginning. He was born of a virgin, but he had no beginning. Jesus said this himself in John chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am. That really threw the Pharisees, the Jews for a loop. 
because they looked up to Abraham because Abraham was like their paternal hero and they looked up to him as really the, the beginning of the Jewish race and indeed he was. But when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, he was talking about his pre-incarnate existence. Matter of fact, he was not only existing, he himself, according to the Bible, created everything that is. You know, in Colossians 1, it says, For by him, talking about Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. He is before all things, and by him all things exist. You know, we could, we could look these up. We'll not do it tonight. But in a, a variety of ways and in numerous places, in the Old Testament, before Jesus was born of a virgin, he had these pre-incarnate manifestations where he, he, he it, like for instance in the case of Abraham and Lot, it was Jesus who went there and discussed with him about the future of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. So when you think about the doctrine of Christ, you have to think back to his pre-incarnate existence. And then second of all, let's just think for a moment about his incarnation, which we're more familiar with that. But, you know, his virgin birth was essential. It was prophesied. As a matter of fact, when the very first person sinned in the Garden of Eden, the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, was promised would come in this way, the seed of woman will bruise the head of the serpent. The seed of woman would biologically, we know that the man is, has the seed, the woman doesn't have a seed, so this, the seed of the woman means that she would have a child conceived but without a human father. That's, that's in Genesis chapter 3, the incarnation is essential to the doctrine of Christ. The Savior would be born without a human father. That's our Savior. His pre-incarnate existence, his incarnation, and then once he's born, we think about his humanity. His humanity. This is a part of the doctrine of Christ. Jesus was 100% God and at the same time 100% man. He would grow as any man would grow. Luke chapter 2 and verse 50, 52 says this, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew like any other child would grow. He had a very typical human experience. He had a very typical human Jewish appearance. He was subject to human limitations like we are. He thirsted. He got hungry. The Bible says that he was weary in his journey. He required sleep. He experienced pain. He had human emotions. He had love. He had grief. He had joy. He had anger. Not sinful anger, but righteous indignation. He lived a life as a human. 100% human, but 100% divine. And one of the great things about the life of Jesus for us is that he gives us an example of a sinless person, but a person in a human body who lived his life in dependence upon his heavenly father. 
I won't do anything I don't see my father doing. I won't say anything I don't hear my father saying. He, he was, we're talking about his humanity. His humanity. Did he ever sin? No. Was he ever tempted to sin? Yes. But he never sinned. So we think about his pre-incarnate existence. We think about his incarnation. We think about his humanity. But we also think about his deity. Jesus was and is in every way 100% God. And yet he lived in a body of human flesh. 1 Timothy 1.16 says this, very simply put, God was manifest in the flesh. Think about that phrase. God was manifest in the flesh. And the names of Jesus, just a few of those names, clearly speak of his deity. Jesus himself called himself the Son of God. And he's, refer- he's called God. And he's called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And he's called many times Lord. I mean, we, we, Jesus was not just a man. Young person, you've got to be right on this. Jesus was God in the flesh. Uh, that union of God, Christ, the creator, the eternal God, in a human being, uh, there's a special term given to that, one that probably maybe you've never heard, you seldom will ever hear. It's called the hypostatic union. There's a little vocabulary word for you. The hypostatic union. He was God and he was man. And he, it had to be that way. He had to be man because Christ had to be a sinless man to be a sacrifice for sin. So he had to be a man. But he had to be God because the sacrifice had to be infinite. Not just temporary, it had to be ongoing. It's not just for one person, but for all people. All people of all ages, of all time. He had to be God, he had to be eternal to give a sacrifice that was infinitely for all people and he had to be man because the sacrifice had to be a perfect human. And then we want to think about his atoning work. I mean, of all the things you think about, and by the way, when you read the gospel, we see Jesus everywhere, right? But we see him throughout the Old Testament. We see his work. We see his manifestation. You know, the Bible says that that rock from which they drank water was Christ in the wilderness. Jesus is, you see Jesus throughout the Bible. But everything about what we know about Jesus and everything written about Jesus points primarily to one event. And that was Jesus' death on the cross. His sacrifice for us. His atoning work. Because everything that gives us hope of life eternal was what he did. Christianity is not about anything we do. Christianity is about everything that he did. And at the heart of all that Jesus is and all that he's done is his sacrificial death on the cross. The sacrifice had to be perfect. The picture of that was the Passover lamb 
that it had to be without spot, without blemish, without any flaws. And when John the Beloved saw him, he said, This is the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. This is God's Lamb. His death was perfect. His death was substitutionary. That means he died in our place. He died in your place. It was a substitutionary death. His death was vicarious. That means he not only died in our place, but he died in our behalf. He died for us. His death was our propitiation. That word is term is seen in 1 John, and it means that the wrath of God, because of your sin and my sin, the wrath of God was appeased, was satisfied because of the death of Christ. His death is preemptive or redemptive. It means that we were, we were in bondage to sin. We were enslaved to sin. We had to be redeemed. Somebody had to purchase us. We were like, it was like we were slaves and someone had to redeem us. Somebody had to pay for us and the redemptive price was the blood of Jesus Christ. His death reconciled us. His death, there was, I know that sometimes people don't see this People don't think about this, but before we were saved, there was enmity between us and God. There was something that separated us from God. You know, you, we may look at each other and like say, well, he's a good old boy or he's a nice guy. But as far as our spiritual condition is concerned, young person, think about this. Before a person's saved, because of their spiritual condition, because of their sin, there's enmity. There's a distance. There's, there's like us and God, we're not on the same page spiritually. And you can't fix that. I can't fix that. In a thousand lifetimes, you couldn't fix that. The only way it could be fixed, the only way it could be reconciled is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And in a moment's time, just think about this, in a moment's time, faster than you or I could bat an eye, you and I, we, I went, you went, if you're saved, from being an, a rebel from being uh, in enmity with God, being separated from God, in a moment's time, we were made nigh unto God in a moment's time because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Not because of anything we did. You don't work your way into a good relationship with God. Jesus paid that price. He took our, he took our sins in his own, upon his own body on the tree. It's an amazing thing. He took my sins upon his own body on the tree. And that sacrifice was not um, almost complete. It was absolutely complete. When Jesus said it is finished, that means it is finished. It's completely finished. The sacrifice for all the people who've ever lived on this planet the sacrifice was made in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank God for that. Amen. I never get over that. I'm amazed that he would save me. I'm amazed that God would love me so much to send his son to die on the cross for my sins. And after three days, God raised him from the dead. That's a part of the doctrine of Christ. His, not only his death on the cross, but his resurrection. 
He showed himself alive by many infallible proofs for 40 days. Many post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to Peter, to the disciples, to the men on the road to Emmaus, to the disciples again in the upper room. One time, hundreds of people, according to 1 Corinthians 15, hundreds of people saw Jesus alive. And after 40 days, he ascended back to the Father. That's a part of the doctrine of Christ, the atoning work and sacrifice of Christ. But it doesn't end there. Then we think about the present work of Christ. We think mostly about his work on the cross, his substitutionary vicarious death on the cross. But what is Jesus doing now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's making intercession for all believers. He's interceding for us. John, First John says he's our advocate. He appears, he appears in our defense before the Father. We have an accuser, the accuser of the brethren. The devil's always accusing us, but we have a wonderful defense attorney. His name is Jesus. Hebrews 7 says, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's interceding for us. Aren't you glad about that? He gets his prayers answered. <laughs> Amen. Remember when Jesus said to Simon Peter, Satan hath desired that he may sift you as sweet. But he says, Nevertheless, I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. I'll tell you, it's good to have Jesus praying for you. What makes you, th what makes you think we're going to make it through? Number one, we have his promises. But number two, we have his intercession. We have his praying for us. That's his present work. Not only that, he is the head. According to Ephesians, he is Jesus is the head of every New Testament church. Right. And he is walking among the candlesticks, according to Revelation. That's the present work of Christ. He's, he finished his work on Calvary, but he continues to work. And he's working even today. And then finally, the future work of Christ. Because we have these promises where he said... I will come again. He is coming again. Isn't that going to be a wonderful thing? I really believed. I've, I've believed this from the time I got saved, and I'm not saying it's going to happen. I've always believed and hoped for this to happen, that I would be alive to see the return of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, everybody, they believe, Paul believed that. I know he did, but I believe it. Good to have Mrs. Murray here. I'll tell you, from, from, the, from the very beginning, we heard, I heard such emphasis from our pastor, from Brother Murray, from influences in our life, that Jesus could come at any moment. And you know what? They made a believer out of me. Because the Bible made a believer out of me. Jesus could come at any moment. Sometimes called the rapture of the saints. He could come. And then after the rapture, Those of us who are saved will not be here. We'll be taken out of here. And if you're not saved and you don't get saved, let me just tell you something you have to look forward to. A time of great tribulation. 
Jesus said, unlike anything this world has seen. You know, I, I'm not saying that all these different things that are happening in our world are directly connected to the return of Christ. But in a way, indirectly they are. They point to the, they point to the kind of world that is going to be here when we're gone. Just violence and unrest and immorality and ungodliness. And, and people who don't like the gospel, they don't like the truth, they don't like holy living, they don't like, you know, following God, you know, maybe for a while they're going to get what they want, which is a life free from godliness and truth. But I'm telling you, it's not going to last for long. It's not going to be pleasant for long. Great tribulation, unlike anything that's ever happened. And there's going to be a lot happening in heaven when that's happening on this earth. But then after that, Jesus is going to come back again, this time riding on a white horse. And we're going to be with him. And he's going to come with this great host of people from heaven. And he's going to destroy all the armies, all the, all the armies of the Antichrist. He's going to destroy them. And then he's going to set up a kingdom on this earth. <laughs> and if you don't like Jesus ruling, you may not like this, but I'm telling you, he's going to rule. It's going to be wonderful. Because he is the true righteous ruler. And for a thousand years, we're going to reign with him. And we're going to serve with him. And that'll be a part of the rewards of those who've served him in this life that you would get to serve him in his millennial kingdom. Isn't it going to be a wonderful thing? It's going to be huge. <laughs> it's going to be great. Who knows? Brother Cook, you might be the mayor of Union, or Franklin County for that matter. Amen? It's going to be great. He's going to rule and reign on this earth. This is Jesus. You know, the Jews... The Jewish people, that, that even those who received him, even those who believed his promises, even those who recognized him as the Messiah, they thought his kingdom would have come 2,000 years ago. But that was not, that kingdom was within the hearts of men. And they killed him. They killed the king. And that's why they mocked at him and scoffed at him on the cross and said, if you're the king, come down off that cross. Well, he is the king. But he had a work on the cross to finish. But he's coming back. And it'll be written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's going to reign on this earth. Just makes me want to shout. It's going to be wonderful. I'm not, I'm not as faithful a servant of Jesus as I should be. But I want to serve him. I, ser I want to serve him now and I want to serve him then. This is who he is, young person. This is who Jesus is. And he is all of this and so much more. He's Lord. He's master. He's the creator, the sustainer of life. By him we live and move and have our being. And that, it's one thing to have him recognize him as the creator and recognize him as God, but it's another thing to recognize him as the Lord of your life. None of us are perfect. None of us deserve to serve him. 
But this is the Christ of the Bible. Is he your Lord? I know he is Lord, but is he your Lord? Do you, do you know him in a personal way? Have you received him, believed on him as your Savior? Jesus said, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I command you? Don't, why do you tell me, why do you say I'm Lord, but you don't obey me? He's worth obeying, amen? He's worth serving. And if you're here tonight and you're not saved, you don't have Christ in your life, I'm telling you, He's, he's the only way. He's the only way. There are not many ways He's it. Amen? Tonight would be a good night if you're not saved to make sure about that. But it's also a good night just to be reminded of who it is that we serve. How wonderful he is.